Kim, thanks so much for joining us on this City Road podcast takeover of the Amplify space. The listeners can't see what we can see, but you are zooming right into the Amplify space here. I'm sitting in literally the tin sheds in an art gallery. Um, and so it's a little bit boomy in here. It's not great for making radio, but we're, we've got lots of great people that we're chatting to about sound and radio and things like that. And you have been doing some really fascinating projects actually outside of the city. And so you're very committed to uh, rural communities and rural experiences. And you've been using sound and sound location recording in that. And I wanted to get into a couple of your projects in a minute, but I thought you could just start off by telling us who you are and what you do. Well, I guess uh, also where I am is probably just as important. I'm right in the middle of New South Wales. Uh, I live on small acreage on the outskirts of Dubbo, which is is a rapidly growing regional city these days. Uh, I'm originally from this region, although all of my education, including my secondary school education, was in Sydney. So I know the city environment very well, as as much as I enjoy visiting the city, um, certainly rural and regional New South Wales and inland Australia is 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 my comfort zone. And it's it's really, I guess, where I focused my work as a sound artist and and somebody who works in digital media and writing generally, because I think it's it's an underexplored area of the country. Yeah. Tell me a little bit of what is a sound artist for people who don't know? What is what is how do you do that? What is it? I spend a lot of time telling people I'm not a musician. Um, That is despite having spent eight years of my childhood learning piano and flute and guitar and and learning how to read music. But I I really don't gravitate towards music, although I do use musical elements in my work. So my work as a sound artist is very much grounded in field recording. So that's using various microphones outside a studio environment to capture those sounds. And that can be atmospheric sound where you've got lots of things happening or it can be singular sounds where you're really sort of focusing in on a particular sound source. My particular interest is in subsurface sounds. So what's happening beneath the ground, inside trees, beneath the water. And that's been pretty much what I've focused on for probably the last five years, which is is work that started when I started exploring the Macquarie Marshes in, in northwest New South Wales back in about 2019, 20. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that project and particularly like a day in the life of Kim when she goes out into the field and records the marshes and particularly how, how do you record inside things and underneath things? So the marshes from Dubbo are about a two and a half hour drive. So that usually requires a very early start. And and I pack when I'm when I'm working regionally, I can pack a lot of kits. So I have 
uh, quite a few specialist microphones. I've got high, different types of hydrophones, contact microphones, geophones that do seismic vibrations, that sort of thing. And then I've got a range of sort of um, omni-style mics um, that I use. They're mostly all condenser microphones. And, and so I pack a big kit because you never quite know what you're going to encounter. But once I get there, the first thing I really need to do, and it doesn't matter what the environment is that I'm planning to work in, is to just sit and listen. I actually spend more time listening these days than I do recording because until you settle into that environment and you regulate your your heart rate and your breathing, you actually start to interfere with the recordings anyway. So there's a physiological reason for doing that. But there's also this thing called reciprocal listening. And it's one thing for me to go into an environment and listen to the birds and the frogs and the insects and, and want to record those subsurface sounds, but they ha they're also listening to me. And if I'm trying to capture that environment in a way that is as close to its natural state as possible, yes, I am part of that environment. So as a human in that environment, I will inevitably capture some of me there, but I don't want to be the major influence. So I need to let everything get used to my presence before I hit record. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Let's, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that project in a sec, but let's just go back to those types of microphones that you were talking about. So a hydrophone, which is a microphone you put under the water to record sounds. And I guess the most famous example of that is recording whales. Um, contact microphones, which uh, if anyone's a guitarist, sometimes guitarists put contact microphones on their acoustic guitar. Tell me a little bit more about all these different types of microphones and how you use them. So the hydrophones, as you explained, is, is for underwater. I've got two types. So one is weighted. So if I drop it in, it's it's got a sinker on it essentially and, it, and I can take it straight to the bottom of whatever body of water, whether that's a river or a lagoon or a shallow channel. I can control sort of where it sits in the water I've got another hydrophone that's made by another international sound artist, Jez Riley French in the UK, and he custom makes these hydrophones and contact mics uh, and has been, I guess, a bit of a, a champion for me in terms of some of this recording. So his microphones are a lot lighter. So what I tend to do with those to maintain some control over their placement is to actually attach them to a boom pole. And, you know, if anyone's ever been on a film set and they've seen the, the sound engineers or the sound recorders actually using boom poles, that's pretty much what it is. But I tend to use painters' boom poles because <laughs> they're, they're very light. Um, they're very easy to sort of throw in the kit. Then the contact mics, which are a piezo-type mic, I tend to, they don't like water too much or prolonged exposure to moisture. So while I have known to bury them in soil, it's usually kind of dryish soil. But what I do tend to use them mostly on is things like fences, wire fences, 
because our landscape's carved up by wire fences and that sound, the sound that those fences make influences the soundscape as a whole. So I've spent a lot of time recording wire fences, high tensile wire, which is beautiful. It's actually really melodic. However, it's constant 24-7. So can you imagine not being able to turn that off? Um, and then I also use the contact mics on trees. So there's a Coolabar tree on the floodplain near the marshes on this one particular property that I've been working on. And it's it's huge. It's It's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And when I first started going out there in 2020, early 2020, so... It was, it was summer and the region had been in drought for three years, but they just started to get some showers of rain coming through. And so everything was just trying to soak up all the moisture it could. And there was just little signs of activity happening that you could hear below the surface. And so I was using the contact mics on the trunk of this massive Coolabar tree and it was really early in the morning and you could hear all the gurgling of the, of the water flowing through the xylem cells and then you could hear these micro vibrations because the tree, despite the fact it look, didn't look like it was moving because the trunk was so enormous, it was the micro vibrations of that tree moving in the wind. Mm. It was fascinating. That is so fascinating. Um, the high tensile steel reminds me of, I was looking at the, how they made the soundscape for Star Wars, the original one. And actually the sound recordist, there was some high tensile wire and he started twanging it one day and he recorded that. And that became the laser, he manipulated that sound to create the laser guns. So yeah, that was just reminding me of that story. Tell me, a little bit about what you do then. So you record these sounds in the landscape and you're using all of this really great technology to capture these sounds which are not what we would naturally think about. When I think about the, if I th had to describe to somebody the soundscape of the outback, I would say birds and maybe trees and leaves rustling, but you're capturing something else that's happening in the landscape. What do you do with that once you bring that audio recordings home? How do you put that together? I think one of the most important parts of my process is that I revisit sites over time. So I gather those recordings over time and I do do the atmospheric recordings to go with them because what I then like to do is to actually layer them into a composition that virtually compresses time and space. So when you listen back to these compositions and they can be anywhere from, say, four, five minutes through to 15 minutes long, you will actually hear the subsurface sounds with the atmospheric sounds because most of those subsurface sounds are going to be beyond the human hearing range anyway. But that doesn't mean that we can't experience them. And it really, what it does for a lot of people who are very familiar with some of those environments is it, it gives them a new perspective on, on the place that they thought they knew so well. And I think we all need a shake up occasionally. So it's a little bit political in some ways. You know, it's, it's nice to think that artists just go and make art. But in terms of what I'm trying to achieve through those sound compositions is to say to people, 
you know, just because we can admire the bird song or the frog song or the sound of running water, the non-human inhabitants of those environments experience something completely different. And this is, I'm not going to say that this is replicating what they might hear, but the fact that I can record that high tensile fence and show what it sounds like to the non-human ear and the fact that it's present 24 hours a day might just make us rethink about how we change those environments for other species. Mm, Fascinating. Can you tell me about one of your other projects? So another project that I have recently exhibited work um, was the Regional Futures Project, and that was a statewide project where there was about 30 artists commissioned from across regional New South Wales to look at what the future of the regions might hold. And I sit smack in the middle of a renewable energy zone here. And the impact of broad-scale renewables on this rural and regional landscape has just been immense. It's happened very quickly. We've got a lot of international companies coming in, state government throwing money at it. And and my feeling from talking to people, because collecting audio stories is another part of what I do, coming from a radio background myself, talking to people, there was some concern in rural communities that they felt completely disempowered about this change that was happening, not only to their landscape, but how it was changing their communities. But the other part of that story that nobody had really considered was how those structures were changing the sound of our landscapes. And so even from those rolling hills of solar panels, you were starting to get changes to how water runs off the off the land and through our water courses. But you were also seeing impact from wind turbines on bat species and bird species. And, and we're not just talking a backyard wind turbine and we're not just talking rooftop solar. We're talking tens of thousands of hectares of of infrastructure, of renewable infrastructure. And so I wanted to sort of entwine those conversations and let people who don't normally have a say in these things talk about their hopes and fears for the future, particularly being in a regional area, and also give a voice to some of those non-human species about what was happening as well. And... When we first had this conversation about you coming on and having a chat with me, you said to me, look, I don't really do anything in cities, but I think this is a great example where the urban and the rural are connected. So the sustainable renewable energy infrastructure is being built in outside of cities, although cities will be using large parts of the electricity that's generated here. And I think what your project's doing is showing us, well, how does that impact these local places? How does the demands of the city impact not only people outside the city, but animals and the the whole ecosystem? So tell me a little bit more about the importance of sound in telling that story. 
It's interesting because you're you're absolutely right. And one of the reasons that the Regional Futures Project was determined to bring that conversation to Sydney, we ended up having an exhibition at Casula Powerhouse Arts Centre for several months. And we had a, a one-day symposium as well that invited Western Sydney to join us at the table to talk about these things is that we are being called the powerhouse or the power stations of the future. And and I think there's a compromise required. So both sides need to compromise. We're obviously compromising the shape of our landscape and our communities for the sake of generating power for growing urban populations. But what are the urban populations going to compromise on in exchange. And I think that is a conversation that hasn't been had. Um, there's lots of ha- conversation happening within our our individual communities. But I think uh, it was interesting, I went to a renewables in agriculture conference last year and there was a, a scientist, an ex-scientist, retired scientist from CSIRO there who said that the easiest way to address a lot of the issues that we're facing is behavioural change. Now, you know, just if you take cars or um, com- the combustion engine out of the equation, that automatically changes the soundscape. And I've just come back from two months in the UK and and spent a month on the Isle of Skye doing an artist residency. And I was just blown away by how many electric cars we saw in Scotland. And even on the Isle of Skye that has a whole island population of around about 10,000 people, there were charging stations all over the place. And yet here in Australia, there's still huge resistance. Interestingly, um, one of our local politicians went to the Bathurst car races on the weekend and made a comment about, you know, how great it was to catch up with everyone, but gosh, it was noisy. I just can't, I mean, personally, I'm I'm very sensitive about my hearing anyway. I like to sort of look after it, but I can't imagine being in that environment for any sustained period of time. And that's kind of how I feel when I'm in the middle of Sydney. Mm. Uh, and I guess they're the sorts of things we can all think about going forward in terms of how do we want to think about our future in terms of the soundscapes that we wish to to live within and that's what we do. We live within these soundscapes. That's not just a landscape. Mm. It's very interesting because I also like to record the sounds of the city and I often walk around with headphones on and an audio recorder and an interview mic and a shotgun mic and you look very strange. And many times, actually, once when I was in Tiananmen Square in Beijing and another time when I was at Barangaroo, I was actually stopped by security and asked, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And we wouldn't do that, even if it was a professional photographer. We are very familiar with cameras, and even a professional photographer with all that gear doesn't look very strange to us. But someone with audio gear does look strange, and I think that tells us something about how unattuned we are to the sonic landscape of cities or other places. Do you experience that? Yeah, look, I th- it's interesting coming from a radio background when everything was analogue and I was carrying around a NAGRA reel-to-reel audio recorder, which used to weigh a tonne. Uh, now you can record on your mobile phone. But 
I think too, you know, in the old days of radio when there was a lot more outdoor broadcasts than there used to be, our communities probably were a little bit more familiar with somebody walking around with a microphone. I think today um, the technology is so much smaller that as soon as you put headphones on, somebody automatically assumes you're listening to music. And, and it's funny because people often say, well, what what do you do as an artist? And I my my joking one-liner is that I raise eyebrows because I'm usually the person squatting beside the road with headphones on listening to something inside a tree as as people are going past and I've had some very very strange reactions to that over the years everything from the glaring hands-on hips through to the you know the what are you doing type sort of gestures um and I do but I do think sound and hearing, hearing and listening are obviously two different things as well. And I think we're often very reflexive when we hear. And very few of us are actually actively, attentively listening. And you can do that in a couple of ways. You know, you can you can be doing it for a transformative experience or you can be doing it in a discerning way to say, what is it about this soundscape that I don't like? And what, what might I do about that? And what, what might we collectively as a community do about that? You know, we're starting to see the urban design of some cities take sound and sound mitigation into account. Uh, I mean, I live in a peri-urban area outside a growing regional city where uh, I've discovered that people feel they have a right to make noise they have a right to ride their dirt bikes and use their lawnmowers and their whippersnippers and and their chainsaws. And, and I, they also feel they have a right late at night to play pumping music as well with the bass turned right up. And I find that really interesting because I grew up in, I grew up on a farm 60 kilometres from the nearest town. So the nights were pretty quiet. The crickets were pretty loud. But I have actually discovered there are some people who've grown up in cities who find the sound of the crickets just too unnerving. Uh, I've got a friend who grew up in New York and she doesn't even flinch when a siren goes past. She just, I, I, I'm always looking out the window going, what was that? And she goes, what was what? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, we're getting on to reception here, so how people receive and listen to and hear, and these are all different things. I wanted to know what people think of your work. How do you present it to them and what do they say about it? Well, I, I guess there's those who just couldn't care less. And then the people who are intrigued tend to be, I've, I've found the subsurface recordings are the things that intrigue people the most. So at the moment I'm playing with moss. I've been recording mosses here in Australia and I recorded a lot of moss in the UK because it's everywhere. Mm. And, and mo most people would say moss doesn't make a sound. I guess that would be the first thing that people say. <laughs> I know. And people say, what made you think moss would make a sound? I go, well, I think the thing that drives me as a creative is that I'm constantly curious and I'm forever wanting to sort of see if something makes a sound. And, and so once I realised that moss was an incredibly rich sonic world uh, and depending on the type of moss, 
the the soil it was growing around, you know, the the time of day, the amount of moisture in the air. You know, you got so many different results from those recordings. And in fact, only on the weekend, I was looking at some desiccated moss. So moss that's starting to dry out because we're getting very, very dry here in inland New South Wales. And all the spores were sort of brightly coloured orange and sitting on the surface of a path near my house. And in the middle of the day on the weekend, I looked at it and I thought, I wonder if that makes is making any sound now that it's dry because it was really dry, that was the most exciting. And I hear you'll see the nerd come out of me. That was seriously one of the most exciting moss sounds I've recorded in months. It was crackly and gurgly and, oh, it was amazing. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so, look, I think. And then what do people make of this when you play it back to them? I think they're absolutely flawed. I've had, I actually had another sound recorder say to me, what makes you think that's the moss you're recording? So I then find that depending on the technical expertise of who's asking the question, I get asked, what microphones did I use? And I always, I always use a minimum of two and I will do it at different times of day and on different days just to make sure I know what I'm hearing. So there's a lot of experimentation goes on to ensure that what you're hearing is what you think you're hearing. And I and look, you, you know, in this game, you have to justify yourself occasionally. And then I get asked, how far away were you standing? Because these microphones, these um, surface microphones that I use are so sensitive that if I'm holding the contact mic, it will pick up the pulse in my thumb. Wow. And, I mean, I even I recorded my own heartbeat using a contact mic the other day because the sound that pulses through those mosses is actually of a similar beat to a heartbeat. And so what I'm now looking at doing is creating a composition that actually puts my heartbeat in the mix with the mosses because it's a very, when you're, in a mossy environment, it's also very tactile. You want to touch it. And so there's all of these great visual descriptors and tactile descriptors. But one of the things that I'm, and I guess this probably leads to a new project that I've I've not made hugely public yet, but what I'm looking to do is find better ways to write and, and describe the world of sound. We tend to not have a great vocabulary for sound and we tend to use the same cliches all the time. So my month on the Isle of Skye as an artist in residence there was actually to spend an entire month just field recording and then going back to the studio and listening back and also doing some attentive listening exercises without the technology and then sitting down and trying to write as descriptively about that for people who perhaps have lost some of their hearing or hearing range or have never been able to hear, and when you ask that question about who's actually interested in this, that's that's a split camp as well because I went into a deaf forum online to ask about, you know, what makes sense to people when you're writing about sound. And some said, well, I've never been able to hear, so why should I care? Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. Others said, make it experiential and I'm yours. And so as a, as a creative, that's what I'm really aiming to do is to make the whole thing as experiential as possible. Mm. I really like the way 
that you might put your own heartbeat in. So it reminds me of when my wife had her first baby. I recorded the whole experience, audio recorded, and pregnancy is an extremely rich sonic experience. So you only need to think about ultrasound as how sonic that whole experience is. And heart, whenever I hear someone talk about heartbeats and recording them, it reminds me of recording in utero heartbeats. Uh, and so I really like the idea that you would put that back into the mix. And I guess you're playing with maybe there a little bit um, maybe you're even pushing back a little bit at the question about are you sure you're recording Moss? Because what you're doing actually is you're, you're recording a, a space, a, a social environmental space with everything that's included in it and all recording and amplification and mixing involves some sort of selective process of mixing anyway. So there is no pure recording of something anyway. So where, where do you, I know this is kind of getting into, you know, longer debates about how we capture sounds, but what do you think about what you're trying to capture in, in the sort of moment and, and how you're mixing it a bit later on? It is a bit of a political conversation, I think, particularly in the sound art sector about pure sound or sound without any anthropomorphic interference because the technology that we use to record it is human designed. I mean, just the fact that you're in that environment, um, if you're actively recording as opposed to passively recording something, even passive recordings require human built technology to do it. So I, I've kind of swung from one direction to the other on that. And I think that will happen the more you sort of invest time thinking about these things as well. And I feel that in terms of the future of our environments, whether they're urban, rural, regional or remote, it is going to require the care of humans to, to make those places sustainable and viable to live in. And so why do we want to keep removing ourselves from it? Yes, when I'm out recording Atmos and trying to capture some amazing bird song and somebody fires up a chainsaw or a dirt bike, Yes, I get incredibly annoyed. But during COVID, when everybody was, you know, the sound world was starting to record the changes in the environment during COVID lockdowns, I was part of the Cities and Memory Project, and um, which runs out of the UK. And it was capturing sounds during that COVID lockdown from all across the globe. And I recorded what I called my peri-urban environment. And I recorded it in its rawest form. And I included all the things that annoy me on a daily basis. And I still think back to that recording, like it's not something I've used in any of my work since then. It's not something I've contributed to any other platform since then. But that's the reality of where we're living, you know, and it'd be the same as recording outside your front door in Sydney. You know, the, the noises you capture in that 5, 10, 15 minutes or more is the reality of where you're living. And so I think, you know, we can be idealistic about it as, as people who work in that field to go out. And I mean, when I go out to the Macquarie Marshes, I'm going out there to actually guide a sound walk um, shortly. And the last time I did that was two years ago. I think it was just after COVID. It was one of the first big events in this region that happened after COVID. And I was trying to capture some pristine 
marshy wetland sounds. And I, I put a passive recorder out for two hours. Of that two hours, there was 20 minutes of sound that had no human sound in it. Mm. And, you know, just I guess what that showed to me, and I actually did use that soundtrack for a few different compositions, but it shows to me that we really don't stop and appreciate where we are at any point in time. We seem to want to talk over it, put headphones on, listen to music as we're going through it. And, there, you know, I even saw a story I think over the weekend about was it silent walking? Oh, my goodness. And I just, I mean, a few of us who work in sound saw that story and went, what? <laughs> what is that about? What do you mean silent walking? Does nobody else walk and not talk or make noise or listen to music when they're walking? Uh, so, yeah, look, I think <laughs> as a species, humans have a long way to go in terms of getting back to what we used to understand a lot more and and how important sound was. I mean, just in laying down memories, sound is such a critical sense for us. Mm. Hey, Kim, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been so good. If people want to check out your work, where can they find it? pvgoldsmithart.com is the main site. Um, I also founded a site during COVID called ecopulse.art where there's a lot of sort of social ecology projects with a lot of sound involved in those but there's links to that on my main website cool and we might put a link on our website too thanks so much for joining me today thank you